Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of This Week in AML. I'm John Byrne, Chair of the AMLRS Advisory Board. And I'm Elliot Berman, our Creative Director. We are excited to welcome you to the This Week in AML podcast, where we explore key news and developments in the global financial crime prevention community. Hi, John. How are you today? Hi, Elliot. Uh, doing good. I was real happy to see the uh, podcast that I did with uh, Jeff Perlman that we posted today. Jeff has been pushing his uh, uh, biography of Bo Jackson, and he's been on everything that I pay attention to. He was on Dan Patrick. I saw him on Morning Joe this morning. So really good guy. So I'm happy we were able to give him a little plug in our world. So it was nice to nice to see that. And uh, I got the book yesterday. I haven't started reading yet. So I'm interested in that. But hey, um, we were going to talk about the uh, FATF plenary that just ended uh, several things of major interest to our community, which we will talk about in future conversations. But something came across uh, through email today that I know I shared with you, and that's uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, better known as CSIS, has been working on a, what they call a multi-stakeholder uh, working group on the concept of financial access. And Rick Small and some of us have been involved tangentially. We, we haven't certainly been at all the meetings, but these stakeholder dialogues were to continue to deal with the ongoing issue of access and de-risking. And they came out with their final report today, um, which includes proposals on financial access. So I thought it makes sense to run through those. It's, um, we'll, we'll certainly make it available uh, on our site and linked to this conversation. Uh, but a number of these are recommendations for the, both the government private sector, for policymakers. And um, uh, I, I know it's only been a couple hours, but have you a chance to see a, a, any of those uh, proposals? I did. I took a, a, a quick, I had admittedly a quick read through the document because it didn't, uh, it uh, came out uh, today, as you mentioned. Um, and just um, uh, as you also mentioned, but just to set the stage for those uh, folks who are our listeners who haven't necessarily followed this issue the way uh, you and I have. Um, the focus here is heavily on um, uh, non-governmental organizations and nonprofit organizations who are struggling to provide humanitarian aid uh, through funds transfers into areas that are either sanctioned or have um, heavy uh, counterterrorism financing uh, regimes in place and things like that. And so um, that's kind of the, that's the particular focus of de-risking. We, you and I have talked about de-risking in the past. And as you mentioned, you and Rick Small have been active in this space for a long time, uh, trying to balance the whole issue of a risk-based program um, and the lack of clarity from the various governmental agencies, whether it be the the regulators of institutions who are being, you know, concerned versus the policymakers from Department of State and other places who, you know, uh, may not have a different view, but have a different emphasis. Right. And, you know, um, much work has been done prior to this report and they do 
footnote a number of those efforts, including the effort that we were involved in with uh, ACAMS and the World Bank several years ago with a report that we filed, which I'm going to come back to in a minute. Um, but there's, a no as we say, a number of proposals. Uh, there is some recognition of some successes. Not enough from my perspective, though. Um, not that it's wrong or inaccurate, but I do think um, one of the things that they talk about in terms of recommendations is that the U.S. government should take proactive steps to safeguard uh, MPO's access to financial services by providing regulatory clarity, guidance, and reforming licensing procedures. Well, they've done a lot of that, frankly. They've updated the exam manual, as we both know. They've done statements um, to the regulated community about how all charities are not the same. And there's been certainly some addressing of licensing. So not that more can't be done. So it should always be the case <clears throat> that more is, is um, uh, pursued, but that's already there. And then when they ask what U.S. financial institutions should do, they say that um, they should enhance their understanding of and communication with and commitment to work with NPOs on financial access challenges and provide upfront guidance on necessary documentation, risk requirements for NPO customers as part of the risk-based approach. Already happened, already happened in that document that I referenced um, that we put together uh, several years ago with the World Bank and ACAMS. So I'm not saying it solved the problem because um, they, it did, did not, of course. But uh, we are footnoted. The report is footnoted and mentioned, I believe, twice. But I think it's important to recognize that um, there already are checklists. So I think those checklists, they certainly can be amplified and certainly more can be done. But I think there needs to be a recognition that that is out there and we need to build off of that. So perhaps that's what they mentioned. But again, going back to the report released in June of 2019, the Consortium for Financial Access, which we were part of, how to bank nonprofit organizations the way forward. So again, I'm not disputing that there aren't still major, major hurdles, but I think it's important that we recognize that a lot of work has already occurred. Uh Absolutely. Uh, you know, another one of the U.S. government re recommendations for the U.S. government, which I thought was interesting. Um, I don't know how likely it is. It, it feels unlikely in this environment. But and that was uh, implement humanitarian exemptions from sanctions and counterterrorism measures under IEPA, which is the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, where many of the sanction programs really are um, authorized and propose such exemptions at the United Nations, because as I think mm -hmm. everyone who's listening knows, in addition to the U.S. government and other governments issuing sanctions, the U.N. actually uh, does issue sanctions as well. I, I thought that that was interesting because it really is a systemic solution, at least as it relates to a certain aspect of the problem uh, because of various sanction programs and either the groups or the countries or the regions that are directly impacted or um, uh, where work in those areas would be directly impacted by the sanctions programs. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, but how, I mean, how you get that through Congress today, I mean, I haven't got a clue, but... 
Right. Uh, going back to some of the other recommendations to government that I do embrace, um, establishing a standing senior interagency committee on financial access, uh, you know, which include Treasury, State, USA, AID. That makes a ton of sense. Formalize the multi-stakeholder process. No problem with ongoing dialogue. That certainly makes sense. Make sure it's international. I think that's important uh, because most of the problems with access is because of uh, international confusion, in my view, in terms of jurisdictional uh, areas regarding risk. Um, so I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, you talked about, again, modernizing licensing. Um, I, I don't pretend to be an expert there. So I think that that's, that's something that uh, those folks can uh, hopefully take a look at. Going back to regulatory clarity, like I said, um, what has to happen, in my view, is examiners have to be taught from day one um, that charities and humanitarian groups are not all the same, don't have all the same risks. They've been told that in the manual. They've been told that by statements. So I think training becomes a, an important aspect here. It's not sexy to talk about training, but I think it's pretty important that they do that. Um, policy guidance for operational NPOs that don't receive government funding. I think that makes sense. Um, but I do think training examiners, uh, dealing with those sorts of things, promoting safe payment channels for humanitarian transactions, that's a tougher one to do, right? But perhaps one of their recommendations could start that off with a pilot program uh, right. to, to deal with that. So uh, yeah. again, there's some, there's some really good things in here. Uh, they also talk about creating incentives for institutions to bank NPOs. You know, there are a number of institutions that do that, that do bank NPOs. Maybe having those folks share, quote, their best practices would would be a valued uh, proposition. So, again, you don't need legislation for that. You could have the trade associations working with their government partners doing doing things like that. So I think that's that's important. There's some technology companies that do a good job. I uh, know we've interviewed a few for some of our podcasts. Find out uh, Finclusive is one of those. How is that working? You know, so there's some references to that um, there that I think would be, uh, would make sense. One of the things that they say that sort of, I'd like to know more about it, that they said, adopt legislative changes to safeguard humanitarian activities by clarifying the scope and definition of material support prohibitions and that humanitarian action should be excluded from the scope of CT criminal measures. That sounds great, but that's probably really pretty hard to put in place. So, you know, some of this, you got to be a little more uh, realistic, but I don't disagree with communication. I don't, I don't disagree with some of the things that's already been done. Uh, training is essential. Using technology is essential. So there's some, you know, I'm not saying all these recommendations are logical or will work, but it definitely keeps the dialogue going. And for that, they should be commended. Yes. And this, this entire effort and, and many of the recommendations for establishing, you know, an ongoing multi-stakeholder process and things like that, um, they fall squarely into another topic that you and I have spent a lot of time talking about and working on. And that's the whole concept of the value of public private partnerships. Right. Right. Uh, and, uh, 
you know, I, I think that um, here they called it multi-stakeholder, which is perfectly fine. I mean, I, I don't think that it was an effort to do anything other than just, you know, find a, another name. But, um, but I think working through these kinds of difficulties, some of it is just no is is vocabulary and understanding what's really going on as opposed to just lumping you know everybody into a, a single bucket and things like that right. uh, but public private partnerships can be very valuable and it's um this keeping this moving forward even with um you know maybe some of the uh, some of the things that might have been presented in a different way um, is still valuable. And, um, and again, I, as you mentioned, I don't think that the authors of this or the group, the people involved put these recommendations or proposals together with the idea that they're all going to get adopted. Right, I think it's right. to, you know, it's to continue to keep the conversation going and different groups, parts of, the U.S. government, parts of industry, um, you know, the uh, the NPOs, they're all going to grab at different parts of this and come back together, reconfigured in different ways to try to make progress. And while we need big progress, even small progress would be a good step forward. Yeah. One other thing I want to mention, because it's always important, in, in my humble opinion, that uh, facts don't get hidden somewhere. There's a reference within the document that talks about the stakeholder dialogue that we worked on with the World Bank and ACAMS that resulted in the report that I mentioned. Uh, and it says that this is the actual wording um, that struck me, <laughs> struck me hard because it's actually not true. Although the process yielded early successes in enhancing understanding cooperation, especially among NPOs and banks, that's absolutely true. The initiative was eventually abandoned due to a lack of engagement by the U.S. government agencies. Uh, not only is it not true, while the agencies didn't work as fast as we wanted them to, they did update the manual. They did do statements. Um, they certainly did uh, embrace a number of the concepts in our paper. So there were other reasons why the dialogue ended. It was not because of lack of engagement by agencies. So I think it's important to recognize that because you just mentioned it. Partnership's so important. And so the, so the being partners, give your partners credit when they do the work. And our regulatory partners, you know, maybe didn't work as fast as we would have liked them to, but there's a lot of reasons for that, but they did. And is it solved? No, but it's ongoing. So I think we just have to be careful with our use of words as we go forward with a very important issue. De-risking is going to continue to, to challenge us, but I think everybody wants to see success. So I think there'll they'll be success at some point. Agreed. So, John, uh, what uh, what else uh, do we have going? We, we've got a, a, a webinar teed up for uh, November 17th. You want to talk about that just for a moment? It, um, well, it's funny. When this is running, we'll have already done our webinar for October. So that's right. coming up as we prepare for this. The uh, November 17th is on um, uh, uh, ter terrorism. This is um, uh, maybe you can amplify for me because because on this one, we're using some of uh, uh, folks from the government as well as the private sector. And um, this is uh, this is an issue that continues to challenge our our client base. So why don't you talk a little bit about it? Yeah. So this is it, the focus is going to be on uh, uh, trying to interdict 
identify and interdict uh, financing uh, yeah, terrorism and right. and kind of taking it from the global level to the regional level to the local level. Um, and yes, we, we have uh, we'll have a representative from the uh, uh, counterterrorism division at the FBI and uh, also uh, uh, someone from a, a U.S. Um, a large U.S. bank uh, who has significant uh, experience and background in this area. And uh, Dennis Lormel, uh, uh, former head of TFOS and um, and now a consultant uh, in this area will be moderating. And so uh, uh, it'll be, but the thing to note is because of the Thanksgiving week, we're going to do it a week early. So it'll be this Thursday, the 17th. And you will be, when you hear this podcast, you, the registration will be live on our website. Yeah. And uh, another podcast that we have in the hopper that will be uh, posted uh, soon is one that I did with our advisory board member, Nick Burbridge, Nick is the former deputy director of OSPI in Canada. And uh, Nick had some really interesting things to point out in the new OSPI uh, annual report. So um, look, look for that in the next few weeks as well. Sounds good. All right, John, have a great weekend. You too. Take care. Yep. Bye-bye.